This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. It feels like it's been a while, but I guess on your end, you just see two episodes coming out every month. Anyway, John and I are going to talk to you today about atrial fibrillation. John, jump in. What article are you discussing? All right. Well, first up, we're going to talk about the effect of 15 milligrams of adoxaban on clinical outcomes in three age strata in older patients with AFib. This was a pre-specified sub-analysis of the Elder Care AF randomized control trial. This was published in JAMA Cardiology, April 13th, 2022. Cool. What was the research question? They wanted to know, is very low dose adoxaban beneficial among patients 80 years of age or older for stroke prevention in those considered not candidates for standard dose oral anticoagulation because of high bleeding risk? Okay. And why did this catch your eye? Well, I mean, we're talking about AFib today because AFib is important. Like AFib increases with age, but both age and AFib are independent risk factors for stroke. And clinicians often worry, well, like a full dose DOAC in an older patient who might be kind of frail, like what's their bleeding risk? Elder Care AF was a randomized trial that looked at this 15 milligram dosing of adoxaban versus placebo with a primary endpoint of stroke or systemic embolization in Japanese patients over the age of 80. And adoxaban was found to be superior to placebo in reducing the incidence of stroke, but there was this higher bleeding risk. So this was a pre-specified analysis to then explore risk of stroke and bleeding among three age groups. Yeah, I remember when this trial, uh, Elder Care AF, came out. To me, this was practice changing. And um, as a result of this, I started prescribing low-dose adoxaban to people who generally uh, met the inclusion-exclusion criteria. I didn't specifically care if they were Japanese or not, but I appreciate that the study population um, was in Japan. Anyway, what was the study designed for this secondary analysis? Um, so this was a sub-analysis of Elder Care AF Phase 3 randomized control trial, and it was conducted from 2016 to 2019. Patients were randomized to this 15 milligram dose of adoxaban versus placebo. And patients were 80 years of older, had AFib, and a CHADS 2 score of 2 or more, and all patients were Japanese. They included patients had to be deemed not eligible for oral anticoagulation due to one or more of the following. So that included a creatinine clearance less than 15 to 30, uh, a history of bleeding from a critical area, you know, organ or bad GI bleed, and a low BMI of less than 45, uh, concurrent NSAID use or concurrent antiplatelet use. Patients were excluded if they had active bleeding at the time of enrollment, if their hemoglobin was less than 90, or if they had unresolved peptic ulcer disease. Uh, the primary endpoint was a composite of stroke or systemic embolization. And then the primary safety endpoint was based on the International Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis defined major bleeding. This was an intention to treat analysis, and patients were then divided into three age strata, 80 to 84, 85 to 89, or over the age of 90. Cool. And what did the patients look like? So there was just over a thousand patients enrolled, 984 were randomized uh, to low dose adoxaban versus placebo. There were about 354 patients in the 80 to 84 group, 374 in the 85 to 89 group, and 256, which was about 26% of the population, in age 90 or older. So the mean age in each group was like 82.2, 88.8, or 92.3 years. 42% of them were men. The HASBLED score 
average to about like a moderate risk, like about two or so for all uh, patients across age groups. And, you know, there were some differences amongst patients in the age group. So older patients were less likely uh, to be male, had worse creatinine clearance, lower rates of hypertension and diabetes, and older patients had higher rates of CHF, dementia, and kind of a global frail status. And, and one thing that's kind of interesting is that like about a third of the patients had a fall in the prior year. And I mean, that's always one of the things I worry about. Like someone falls, smacks their head on the concrete. Okay, great. Now I've caused an intracranial bleed. Right. Yeah, I, I hear you. I mean, I know some data suggests that grandpa or grandma have to fall a lot of times um, in a given year for the risks to outweigh the benefits. But I have the same, I think, you know, cognitive slash recency bias because it's something we get paged about often on internal medicine. Anyway, what did they find overall here? Well, what they found was that the incidence of stroke was lower in the adoxaban group versus the placebo group, and there was no significant interaction with age. So in the placebo group, stroke occurred in about 4%, 7%, and 10% by those age groups. Whereas in the adoxaban group, stroke occurred in like 1%, 2.8% or 2.4% by age group. So a pretty impressive reduction in stroke. Now, when you look at that bleeding as the safety endpoint, there was a numerically higher rate of bleeding, both major and non-major bleeding in patients on the adoxaban group. Um, so for example, in the placebo group, uh, about you know, one patient in the lowest age group versus, you know, a couple of patients in the highest age group in placebo group had a bleed. Whereas in the adoxaban group, it was about 2% across the first two age strata and then about 6.5% in the highest age strata. And what was the main limitation after sort of reviewing this article from your vantage point, John? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think the outcome is pretty impressive. It is a single study. So whether or not we need to see this like reproduced, I think it'd be hard to do this trial again in this patient population. But I don't know. I mean, I think overall it was pretty well done. Yeah, I agree. And it is incredibly impressive. You know, the sample size that they achieved here very often, you know, our older adults that we look after on the internal medicine ward are completely underrepresented in clinical trials. And here's a really nice exception to that. Anyway, what's the take home point for you? Uh, well, the take home is that low dose adoxaban was associated with a lower risk of stroke, but a higher risk of bleeding across all age strata. Cool. And practice changing for you? I mean, I kind of like what you said already. I don't think we have any other data to help us with our clinical decisions. And so I think this can be really important when we're then dealing with an older patient with AFib, um, you know, Again, might be nice to see this data reproduced, uh, but for the time being, this could help inform some clinical decision making. Yeah, and perhaps I'm the early adopter and you're the more conservative of the two, because when I first saw this trial, I was like, yep, this is practice changing and I'll be waiting a very long time for somebody to uh, replicate it. But who knows who's right? Anyway, we're going to keep talking about atrial fibrillation. Um, this study is hot off the press, uh, published today on the day of recording, uh, August 28, 2022, entitled Rivaroxaban in Rheumatic Heart Disease Associated Atrial Fibrillation, the Invictus Randomized Trial, which bears no resemblance to any of the words in the title. But anyway, New England was impressed. So I think this is an impressive study, and it's from McMaster, uh, not too far from where I am. Yeah, they really fished out of a few very key letters, I think, in that title. But uh, what was the research question here? Does rivaroxaban reduce cardiovascular events in patients with AFib and rheumatic heart disease? Oh boy, this is very important, and I really hope we get a good result here. But why did you think this was an important study? So you've already covered why atrial fibrillation is clearly important for the general medicine world. Taking it one step further, 
In high-income countries, AFib is most often from hypertension, ischemic heart disease, advanced age. But in low- and middle-income countries, that's simply not the case. A major cause of atrial fibrillation is related to rheumatic heart disease. So, you know, moderate to severe uh, mitral stenosis. And studies have previously showed that in non-rheumatic heart disease, or the so-called non-valvular AFib, Rivaroxaban is a winner, and it's much better than warfarin. But those studies exclude folks who had valvular heart disease. So the question is, okay, well, does it work in this patient population, realizing that warfarin is a hassle and rivaroxaban is not? Warfarin is such a pain. Oh, boy. Okay, so how do they do this study? This was an open label, Bayer funded, so the, the drug company Bayer funded the trial. And as mentioned, patients were randomized to either rivaroxaban versus warfarin if they had atrial fibrillation and echo-confirmed uh, rheumatic heart disease. So they included adults age 18 and older. They had to have rheumatic heart disease. So this was you know moderate or severe mitral valve stenosis. They had to have AFib. And then one of the following, uh, a chads VASC score of two or higher, a left atrial spontaneous um, echo contrast being detected, a left atrial thrombus, or mitral valve stenosis not more than two centimeters uh, squared in size. They excluded adults with a mechanical heart valve or patients who it was deemed highly likely that they would need a mechanical heart valve in the next six months. They also excluded adults who were on drugs that were strong CYP3A4 or P-glycoprotein inhibitors, as well as individuals with a GFR less than 15. The primary efficacy outcome, they had to change over time, and that's because they hoped to have a nice clean outcome of stroke or systemic embolism, but they realized that the rate of this outcome was really, really slow, so they adapted it to include stroke, systemic embolism, myocardial infarction, or death from vascular, this could be cardiac or non-cardiac, um, or unknown causes. And although the trial was unblinded, the outcomes were blinded. Uh, so as mentioned, this intervention was being randomized to RIVA, uh, 20 milligrams or 15 milligrams, depending on your creatinine clearance, um, or dose-adjusted warfarin, and it was a non-inferiority study. All right. So what did the patients look like? So they enrolled 4,500 patients. Most were enrolled in Africa, Asia, Latin America. The mean age was 51, 72% uh, were women. And um, moderate to severe mitral stenosis was present in, you know, over 80% of the included patients. Uh, notably, only half of the patients had a CHADS-VASC score of two or higher. And at the time of enrollment, half the patients were on warfarin. It's pretty fascinating because they checked to see, oh, what's their INR currently? And in 33% um, uh, of patients had a therapeutic INR on the warfarin. And of course, after the study started, they had much closer monitoring of the INR. And I will note up front, it was sort of in therapeutic range approximately 60% of the time. Geez, that's a little humbling, eh? Even in a randomized controlled trial setting, you only get them therapeutic 60% of the time. Okay, what was the main result? Exactly. Don't be hard on yourself, John, if your patients only achieve 60%, okay? You're, you're as good as a multi-million dollar randomized trial. So I will note that the trial ended early based on an interim analysis. So specifically, they found that the primary composite outcome occurred in 
8% per year in the Rivaroxaban arm compared to 6% per year in the Warfarin arm, okay? And a higher rate of events is bad because remember, this was a composite of stroke, systemic embolism, death, etc. The obvious question whenever we have a trial that has a composite primary outcome is what drove the outcome? And in this case, it was primarily any hospitalization um, and death from any causes. So the two of those were much higher in the Rivaroxaban group. And then they had some interesting secondary outcomes. So there was a higher incidence of death among patients randomized to rivaroxaban. Um, no major difference in major bleeding. And if anything, it appeared as though um, the risk of bleeding was lower in the rivaroxaban arm. And then finally, more individuals in the rivaroxaban arm stopped the drug compared to warfarin. Uh, this is a bit of a bummer. Uh, so, okay, well, what are the limitations of this study? So first, it's a composite outcome in a composite outcome that they had to update over time. They had to update it over time for very understandable reasons. So, you know, the average age of these participants was 51. It's unsurprising that very few patients had a stroke or a systemic embolism uh, as a result of this. But whenever you have a composite outcome, especially when it's full of lots of different components that have different weighting, like death um, versus myocardial infarction, it gets really tricky to understand what's going on here and to explain it to patients. Also, because this was an unblinded trial, it's very, you know, easy to rationalize that maybe the patients who got randomized to warfarin acted differently. You know, they were monitored far more closely for their INR than individuals in the rivaroxaban arm. So even though the adherence, or I should really say, you know, the time in the therapeutic range was 65% in the warfarin arm, Maybe that was much higher in the Rivaroxaban group. Maybe they just stopped taking it, um, for example. And, and I should note the most common reason given for stopping Rivaroxaban were hospitalization for valve surgery uh, or just the patient's decision to um, stop it. Uh, and did they report that at all and just kind of like compliance or whatever you want to call it for, you know, taking the Rivaroxaban consistently? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so... The, I, it's really hard to measure adherence, both in trials and in real life. I think the most striking feature that um, suggests the adherence to rivaroxaban was much worse was just the plain fact that people were more often, more likely to stop rivaroxaban than they were to stop warfarin. So I think that is probably the best metric we have to show, okay, there's probably pretty, pretty bad adherence here. But I didn't see data in the manuscript related to like pill counts, for example, or other things like that. Yeah. Okay. And I guess one other question is, I mean, maybe you can first tell us what you think the take-home point is, but do you think if this trial had been done in an older patient population where there would have been higher rates of stroke, if that would have been leaning more towards any rivaroxaban benefit signal, or is that too much, too much skepticism? I think it's too hard to know in all honesty. Like the take-home point from this study is it appears as though rivaroxaban is bad for anyone with AFib um, due to mitral valve stenosis. But I would not say this is like the last and definitive study. I think, first off, I think apixaban is better than rivaroxaban. So um, I'll be really interested to see a randomized trial of apixaban versus warfarin. But also, I think it'll be really crucial that 
I get it. We can't blind whether or not somebody's getting an INR checked versus not, and the frequency at which you take a Pixivan versus like warfarin, you know, in a future study. But I think it'll be so crucial that the same level of adherence and follow-up occurs in both groups. So I think even if you're randomized to a Pixaban, you should really be following the patients just as closely um, as those in the warfarin arm. Because there's also a possibility that maybe because individuals who got warfarin had more touch points with the healthcare system, maybe there was just other knock-on benefits. Oh, we should screen you for this and this. Or, oh, while you're here, let me start you on a statin or Mike's favorite drug, an SGLT2 inhibitor. Um, but of course, I'm speculating here. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I mean, maybe you can make an argument that you could just check the INRs, like do a blinded trial, check the INRs in both groups, because you might even get a signal for whether they're taking the medication or not. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, I like that a lot, John, or even like hell, like order the anti-10A levels. Like we wouldn't do that in real life because it's like expensive and blah, blah, yeah. blah. But at least that could mm -hmm. answer, okay, is this an issue with therapeutic adherence? Is this an issue related to like interacting more with the healthcare system? Or is it a combination of... I'm in this trial, I'm on this drug, and they're monitoring me. I better keep taking this drug as opposed to the river oxaban when they're like, eh, no one's checking, whatever, I'll stop this. Yeah. Okay. Well, practice changing for you? Right now, it's practice affirming. I certainly don't prescribe DOACs to uh, adults who have uh, atrial fibrillation related to mitral valve stenosis, but I'll be very curious to see uh, what comes you know, in the future for other trials, perhaps related to a Pixaban. Yeah, I like that. I think, you know, we still don't have the signal yet that we can start using DOAX. Patient, sorry, but you're stuck with the warfarin. Agreed. Anyway, John, uh, what caught your eye when it comes to the good stuff? Uh, well, in the news this week, Nazem Kadri, a former Leaf and soon-to-be Calgary Flame, uh, he's the first person of Muslim faith to win the Stanley Cup. And there's a really great article and a bunch of pictures of him coming home to London, Ontario uh, and celebrating in his town and his childhood mosques. It's just a really great story. Yeah, that's awesome, especially considering all the adversity and like racism he experienced during the, you know, Stanley Cup finals and the playoffs. So mine is less feel goody type stuff and much more navel gazing. And so I think, as you know, John, our or my research team has created this tool called Journal. Um, so, you know, Journal is meant to be a resource for researchers to find like, okay, what journal should I submit to? What on earth do they require me to include in my submission? And then we also have a cool section, which is called like rate a journal, uh, R-A-J or like rage for short. So if you want to rage on a journal to give them your <laughs> feedback and please, you know, say nice things about the journals um, that don't create work for you. But anyway, John, check it out. Create an account. Yeah. Journal now. I like it. J-R-N-O-W-L. Yeah, it's free. And you're right. You could call it journal. Maybe we should have. It's journal. We have a cute little owl that is our, our mascot. But anyway, I'll let you uh, take a look at the link and we'll include it in the show notes. Perfect. Well, Mike, nice to talk to you this week. Until next time. Awesome. See you, John. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support. <laughs>